Hey friends, today we are bringing you a special episode on the Alabaster Jar podcast. As you know, the Alabaster Jar is brought to you by Northern Seminary and the Center for Women in Leadership. What we love about being part of the Northern Seminary family is that we are a community of scholars and practitioners creating resources that help church leaders engage the world and lead well in their churches. Northern Seminary has just released an innovative new podcast called The Pastor's Table. Reverend Tara Beth Leach, a previous guest here on the Alabaster Jar, and Dr. Mark Quanstrom are the hosts of this new podcast. Today, we are bringing you the first episode from The Pastor's Table. It's a great conversation, and I hope that you will enjoy this episode and take a moment to subscribe to The Pastor's Table on your favorite podcast app. From Northern Seminary and the Center for Theological Integrity, this is The Pastor's Table. Today's church leaders are weary and burnt out from trying to lead in the machine of corporate leadership systems. The Pastor's Table brings you conversations with local pastors working out deep theological convictions in their churches. Here are your hosts, Rev. Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom. Hey everyone, I'm Tara Beth Leach. And I am Mark Quanstrom. And we are co-hosts of The Pastor's Table. Mark, why are we here? Why are we here? We are here because we believe in the church. We do believe in the the church. One of the first reasons. We believe in the church. We're here because we love the church. Mm -hmm. Why are we here, Tara Beth? Well, I'm here because I'm a pastor and I love the church. And I've, I've had some struggles with the church as well. You know, I often say I'm a millennial that still loves the church. You're a millennial that still loves the church. I am, and I still believe in the church. I believe in the church because Jesus believes in us. But there's, we both have stories that have brought us here, right? We both have stories that have brought us here. We both have seen the church in its glory and its not-so-glory, and we still love the church as the bride of Christ. And we believe in the ministry of pastors. We believe in the vocation of—we believe in the calling— That's right. And that's why we call this a pastor's table, because this is a place where we sit with pastors, we'll sit with other pastors, where we share in some of those struggles. We'll be able to look at other pastors that are just like us, not celebrity pastors, but boots on the ground pastors, where we'll be able to look at them and say, yeah, like we get that. And they'll be able to say, yeah, me too, because this is a table where there's been hurt. This is also a table of hopefulness. And this is a table where we want to equip pastors to navigate these contentious times that we are living. The pastor's table, because there's not a one of us that knows everything we need to know. And we all always ought to be learning from each other. And the pastor's table with Tara Beth and Mark, because we're both active pastors and have been for many years. I've been a pastor for 36 years. Mark, tell us about your story, because when you, you became a pastor, I would imagine that like most of us, we have this utopian view of what ministry is going to be like. Like we are going to preach the best sermon Sunday after Sunday. So many people are going to come to Christ. There's going to be great revival, great baptisms. And I would imagine when you had calling, you had maybe somewhat of a hopeful view. I don't I don't know, maybe not, but but I think a lot of us we start off that way. Tell us your story. How did it begin? And then tell us What brought you here to this moment right now? I have had those kinds of visions periodically, but that's not how it started. Okay. No, how it started for me was I'm a reluctant disciple. 
Okay. Most of my life, I've been a reluctant disciple. I don't know that people are given permission to think that they can be disciples reluctantly, but I have kicked against the call of God in my life almost every step of the way, which at this point in my life, I should have learned by now that, you know, that's probably not the best thing to do. Furthermore, why would I? But I was absolutely convinced of my inadequacy for the vocation. Wow. The Lord called the wrong person. Hmm. Uh, my goal in life was to be a solo circumnavigator in a sailboat. Okay, say more about that. That's, I mean, I was gonna, I love sailing and I like sailing by myself. Mm. And so that wasn't just a an image, like a metaphor. You no, mean I you wanted sailed. to be a literal sailor. I was gonna, no, I wanted to see the world. Okay. And solar circumnavigation was a, is a challenge. I mean, who does that? But I thought that was what I would like to do. I don't think that's true. But as far as I knew myself, I was not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. I don't like public speaking. I still do not like to preach. To this day, wow. I don't like to preach. If I could pastor without preaching, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. What's so amazing about this, and our listeners don't know this, is I used to watch you preach. Mark Mark officiated uh, the wedding, uh, my wedding with my husband. He was my husband's pastor. And I learned the best trick from you. I've I learned a no lot idea. about preaching from you. I've admired your very thoughtful preaching for years. But one of the things that you taught me is how you put your notes in the Bible. <laughs> and everywhere I go, people want to know about that. How do you do that? And I tell them, I learned that from Dr. Mark Quanstrom. I'm afraid my legacy will be put your put your notes in your Bible like it's a part of the Bible. So you give the <laughs> illusion of speaking every word from the Bible. I'm go. afraid that's going to be my legacy. Paperclip your notes in the Bible, pe your you Bible people. But you would never know that you've been afraid of preaching or that you don't like preaching because you are a gifted preacher. It is the hardest thing I do. It's the most important thing I do. And maybe for that the reason is the reason I don't like it. But it, I sweat... If, if I had to wait until a sermon was ready to be preached, I would never have preached a sermon. The only reason I've preached any message in my life is because Sunday morning, 1030 rolled around. Amen. As they say, Sunday comes every four days. Yes. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming means mm -hmm. something really different to me than it did to yes. Compolo. <laughs> I hear that. So so I, I'm a reluctant disciple. I took my first church in Southern Illinois. It was there 23 years, little tiny church, 26 people. I was the youngest by half their age. It was backwards. I thought, what am I doing standing in this pulpit, preaching to people who have been Christians twice as long as I've been alive? 26 people. 26 people when I took Belleville first, yeah. Wow. And it, the loneliest I've ever been in my life was when I was pastoring Belleville as a 26-year-old with a three-month-old baby. Mm. But the Lord called me to it, and I was obedient, reluctantly obedient, and stayed there 26 years. And we, I never made the cover of any Grow magazine. I, we grew the church incrementally over 23 years because I was interested in building a community of faith, not an aggregation of individuals. Mm -hmm. And so that dictated how we did church. Mm -hmm. And because I believe in church as a discipling community and as a countercultural community, that precluded me from doing a lot of things that would I might have otherwise done. In any event, there for 23 years. And I just want to pause at the significance of that, because it is absolutely a resistance against that flywheel 
that evangelicalism tells us that we have to get after that 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 race that we have to get after of you know you've you've got to become a celebrity pastor or you've got to you know you'll pastor a church of 26 people grow up to 100 well then they'll move you to a church of 300 pastor that faithfully for a few years and they're going to move you to a church of 600 pastor that faithfully for, for a few years and then they're going to move you to a church of several thousand and then they're going to become some sort of denominational leader you know that is not yep. an uncommon track that many young pastors get after but you you stayed there. You stayed put. I don't know if it's ego or integrity that kept me there. I didn't. I I didn't want to build on anybody else's foundation, and I thought if you can't do it here, you can't do it anywhere. Yeah. And in twenty three years, you can imagine that I had invitations to go to other churches, and every every one of those, every one of those invitations, I had to discern is that a temptation or an opportunity. Yeah. And I and just you, go ahead. And you could have. I mean, you published a book while you were there. You got your PhD, and I you, you look like you're like, why are you saying all this? He did not. He did not set me up for this. But I just wanted to. I'm not trying to put you on a pedestal, because but what I think is important is it models theological integrity, which is something we are going to be talking about a lot over this podcast, and fidelity. And something that our listeners don't know is that you also pastored my husband's family. And I, I'm i very public about my relationship with Jeff. I talk a lot about Jeff. We often go places, I'll go to conferences, and people will walk up to Jeff and they'll know him. And Jeff will always be so confused. Why do they know me? Well, it's because I talk about him. I, he's all over social media. He's he's He wrote an excerpt in the book Emboldened. And one of the things that I talk about Jeff is he's one of the most godly men I, I've ever known in my whole life. And why I, I highlight that is is because you were his pastor. And I thank God for the ways that you poured into Jeff and his family because of the ripple effect that it is now having. And so, so no, like you, you weren't on celebrity platforms or stages, but you, you were faithful. And I'm just so thankful for that ministry. So uh, 23 years in Belleville, and I was uh, officiating at the weddings of the children that I had baptized and dedicated. Yeah. And again, the vision that I was working out of was a community of committed persons to one another, a covenantal community in that place, in that particular place, at that particular time. And I learned, I don't know, quarter of the way through that I didn't have to do it like anybody else. I had to figure out how God wanted to do it through me. So, Could you just tell us really quick, can we just pull that apart just for uh, one moment? Because it's so, I love what you said. It was so beautiful. And you said you were forming a covenantal community of people. What's that vision? So this is driven by an ecclesiology, and that is the church is a countercultural community of faith, providing the world an alternative way of being with others. Wow. Okay, does that make sense? So, so commitment to each other means you hang in there. Commitment to each other means you learn the fruits of the spirit by virtue of the being a part of a community. It means you don't live for yourself. Mm. Covenantal community means that my children are in the church because they were committed to the church by virtue of their parents. We had, uh, that Belva first raised our kids. Yeah. So you, you express gratitude to me as Jeff's pastor. I need to say that Stu and Lynn Leach, Jeff's parents raised Luke with mm. us. Mm -hmm. Luke spent as much time as a, as a teenager in Stu and Lynn's house as he did in ours. Yeah. And we trusted Stu and Lynn to know how to tend to Luke. Yeah. So the covenantal community is a group of people who say, as the children of Israel did, well and not so well at times, these are my people. 
And these are who I'm learning who Christ is. These are the people through whom I'm learning who God is. Hmm. And so that was my vision, which meant I could not leave. It's a robust ecclesiology, which is which is why we're doing this podcast, because we want to set that kind of vision. Like We want to call pastors to have that kind of theological integrity, meaning we don't want to create, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to form churches that are about just getting butts in the seat. We are not, I am not interested. We don't want to entertain. I am not interested in an aggregation of individuals gathering around an entertainment aesthetic. That's right. That we, that is, that we call worship. So, so men uh, shared life together. So, so anyway, 23 years, then I was at Olivet as a prof and dean and now I'm at Northern doing the Center for Theological Integrity, but... And you've been pastoring as well. And I'm pastor of College Church in Bourbon, Illinois for 13 years, and doing the same thing at College Church that we did in Belleville, an identi- a people identified with a church, so that the church is... Christ is their primary identity, but Christ through the church is their identity. So we are not... Our relationship with the Lord is through his bride. Mm. But... but you're here. I'm here. You're here. And you have the same passion for mm-hmm. church. I do. And for pastors as I do. I do. And so how is it that you got here? You know, I I wasn't as reluctant as you in the beginning. I was zealous. I was fervent. I The moment that Jesus got a hold of my life, you know, so I, I grew up in a family of cultural Christians. Okay. And so I became a Christian when I was, when I was a teenager, That's I a was reading, story. I was reading the gospel of Luke. I, I fell to my knees. I put my hands up and I, I just, the only words that could come out of my mouth were, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I was weeping over my Bible. A few months after that, I went on a missions trip and the youth pastor said, someone is here to be called, to, is called to be a fisher of men. Who is it? And I stood up. What? They prayed for me, and I was gonna—I was gonna take the world for Jesus. How old were you? I was 16 years old. All right. And I—I I, I had no understanding of what a pastor was. I didn't know if I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to be like Billy Graham. I wanted to set up revivals in the middle of towns. And, and here's why: because Jesus had so radically changed my life. I mean, I was there that kid go. where overnight I woke up the next morning and the birds were singing a new song. Mm-hmm. The sun was shining. Life was hopeful and purposeful. I, ha- I had belonging. I had meaning. And I needed everyone to experience the same love of Jesus that I had tasted. And so I was ready to go. And there was, there was an incredible, you know, awakening through my high school, really. A lot of my friends, we all became Christians at the same time. A lot of us are in ministry still to this day. And and it was just this this sweep, this move of the Holy Spirit. And so I ended up enrolling at all that Nazarene University and I studied youth ministry because I thought, well, youth pastors impact in my life, so I'm gonna do the same. Which is not an unusual story. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, that's that was the model that we had. And right. it meant so much to us. So we want to re- we want to model that back. And it was, you know, and it was also I the waters were a little bit murky for me. I, I, I didn't have a clear understanding of a woman's role in the church. Understandably. I'm, yeah, you know, I was really confused. Uh, but by the time that I graduated from Olivet Nazarene University, I had quite the robust vision and biblical framework of a woman's role in the church. When I graduated, I understood that women in ministry was not a progressive idea at all. It wasn't a slippery slope. It wasn't this new thing, but it was old school. 
and right. it was biblical. Right. So when I graduated, I was ready to go. I thought that the church was going to receive me just as I had experienced as a young ministry student. And I actually learned really quickly that it wasn't quite like that, that the church back in those days in the early 2000s was not quite ready for us. And when I say us, I mean young women. Which is ironic in our tradition in mm -hmm. particular, because mm -hmm. in the Wesleyan Holiness Movement, mm -hmm. we affirmed women in ministry from the very beginning. That's right. And it was evidence of the work of the Spirit, the Spirit being poured out on all people. 30% of the pastors in the Nazarene Church in 1920 were women pastors. Right. And so it was uh, we that our denomination kind of regressed regarding women in ministry. That's right. So in our tradition, you should not have had headwinds. Right. But, but in the 2010s, 7%. So we went from 30% to 7% of pastors are women. And what, we, what we've seen with not just in our tradition, but a lot of traditions that affirm women of, in ministry, that understand this is biblical, our denominational leaders and pastors might go through seminary and believe that, but they stop there. Mm -hmm. They stop at affirming. They are not equipping the congregations. They are not giving our people who sit in the pews that same robust biblical mm -hmm. framework that I got. And so what happens is, is churches that they're not sure what they think about it. So they're not going to hire women or if a woman comes, they're going to read, you know, some of those complex letters of Paul and, and realize, oh, you know, can you know, can a woman really preach? So I experienced those headwinds in pretty significant and painful ways. So it shouldn't be so hard because you would think that within an affirming circles, when and when I mean affirming, I mean churches that affirm women in ministry, but we're not emboldening them. We're not mm. empowering them. We're not putting in places to preach, teach, and lead. So a little bit of my story is so I was called to an incredible, a dream situation. My husband and I, we moved to Southern California. We brought our four and six-year-old all the way across the country, and I became the lead pastor at a historic church called Paznaz. It was the second oldest church in our denomination, a lovely, beautiful church, a rich history. And because it was a tradition that was for women in ministry, you would have thought there'd be no headwinds. We knew that there would be some, but nothing could have prepared us for the controversy that followed. It ended up being very publicly controversial. Within the first week, somewhere around 600 people exited the congregation. And many, wait, wait, within the first week? Within the first week. 600 people left the church? Never came back. Because it was a woman pastor. Because it was a woman pastor. In a tradition that believed in women leaders. That's right. So 600 of some 1,800 people, but they didn't, it would have been fine. You know, you could almost say, well, you know, they just can't do women, fine. We'll build the church from here. However, they left very publicly and loudly. They began a public campaign called Save Paz Nas with social media handles. There were memes of me going around the internet. There were they were sending out emails and the the premise of their movement was Save Paz Nas from the woman pastor. This church that used to once be the jewel of the denomination right. is now lost its favor because there is a woman in the pulpit. Now this That was their that was their understanding. That was their understanding. And you can imagine the pain that followed. And you can imagine the ways that that leaked into the church. That impacts morale. That creates polarization. I became a lightning rod. 
because of my gender within this church. And so my, so I, it was, it was incredibly, I remember just at nights, like laying on the bedroom floor, weeping for some of the pain that we went through and pleading to my husband, get me out of this place. Get me out of this place. Take me out of here. The pain was so unbelievable for almost five years. You were there five years? Almost, almost. Almost five. And, and the pain was, it was significant. And yet somehow through that, I maintained this hopefulness for the church. All right. So what does that do to a person? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did that, what did that do? Yeah. you? You know, what did it do to, I, well, I can tell you what I think it does to some people and I can tell you what it did for me. All right. I think some people would walk away from the church. Well, wh yeah, why are you still in ministry? Yeah, I'm in ministry because I'm crazy in love with Jesus. And I, I just, I know that sounds like nuts. Like okay, I'm just wait, 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 like, wait. But so, so you can be in love with Jesus and not be a part of the church, evidently. But Jesus believes in the church. Yeah. And so if I'm gonna believe in Jesus and Jesus believes in the vision of the church, if Jesus prayed for us, then I'm going to follow Jesus's lead and also believing in his vision of the church. When Jesus prayed for us in the garden, this vision of unity, that the world would know, that the world would see God in us, Jesus didn't say, well, in 2016, when this election comes through and then we're gonna experience all of this polarization, it's all gonna go to a hell in a handbasket. So this prayer will mean nothing that Jesus never said that. He actually said the gates of hell won't prevail. And Jesus cast this incredible vision in the Sermon on the Mount of how the people of God are to live. All right, so you were in a church that did not, was not living that, did not give you an opportunity to uh, any of the gifts of the Spirit or the fruits of the Spirit through you, and right? I sh they and I preemptively decided, 600 preemptively decided yes. that by virtue of gender, you could not be their pastor. That's correct. Right, but then they didn't leave it alone and move on. Then they worked to subvert your leadership at that church. That's right. By having a campaign save Paz Naz. That's right. I did not know any of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was um, really disruptive in the church. It was disruptive on the finances of the church. Of course it would it be. It was disruptive on the staff morale. It was disruptive in the denomination because then it became I, it became this conversation and online com people Correct. were talking about it. It was disruptive on my family. Um, for whatever, and it, you know, Mark, like, Believe what you want about spiritual warfare. I this this was demonic. Every family vacation we went on, it would flare up. Every family vacation. So there was no there was no respite for you. I remember we were finally got away as a family, and we went to Yellowstone, and we had no cell service. And we got into an area near one of the rest areas, souvenir shops where we, we had Wi-Fi. And all of a sudden I started getting all these messages on Facebook. My phone was going ding, 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 ding. And I was getting messages, so sorry about you know what's happening. And I thought, what what are they talking about? What what's happening? And I finally, and I finally was trying to get, you know, figure out what was going on because it seemed really dramatic by the messages that I was getting on Facebook. And a public letter had gone out to me about me that was very personal. I even talked about my cooking. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was ridiculous. It, it, they, they, you know, it was an attack on my gender. And again, it was this, this safe pass nash thing. And I, I kind of joke about the cooking piece because I apparently had made a joke about me not being a good cook in a sermon. And they said, if she's not a good cook, what's she doing? 
what is she doing pastoring a church? Anyway, so this public letter had gone out online that the congregation had seen. And so what you see is you see very publicly online of of people saying, yeah, like, get her out. And then people defending it. And so, I, this was on a family vacation. I'm sitting there in the national park and I'm reading this. And I go and I, I go and I'm, I just, I don't want my children to see what's going right. on. So I go and I hide on a rock behind some trees and I break and I begin to weep, almost hyperventilating, just weeping, weeping over the church, weeping over what happened. And my five-year-old son at this time rounds a corner and he sees mommy there crying. And he comes and he, he just came and he, he sat next to me and he put his hand on my leg. He just sat there with me while I cried. He just sat there. This is three years in, evidently. That this this was this was a year in. A year in, just mm-hmm. a year in, and mm-hmm. you stayed three and a half more years. Mm-hmm. Because, because I'm hopeful, as as many have said before me, I'm a prisoner of hope, and I believe. I believe, you know, Mark. I, I'm traditional. I believe in the spirit of Pentecost. I believe in the spirit that can change hearts. I believe in the same spirit that rolled that stone away from the tomb. I believe in the spirit that that Peter prophesied that sons and daughters will. Pro- I just believed that things would turn around. And you know what? It didn't in the way that I envisioned. Mm-hmm. But God did not waste an ounce of our suffering. Nothing was wasted and nothing was lost. And I don't just say that flippantly. I would go back and I would do it again because of the gifts that came out of it, because of the goodness that we did experience through all of that. And because I think that what I think what, you know, (laughs) hell meant for evil, what Satan meant for evil, I think a lot of good also happened. Yeah. So our Lord is a, a Lord who redeems. Yeah. It doesn't author, mm-hmm. but who redeems, right? Right, yeah. So other, I mean, there would have been justification for you to say, you know, never mind, Lord, I'm, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have to do this necessarily, right? Right. But you didn't. You right. stayed three and a half years, but you, you're still not. You're not there now. I'm not there. So in 2020. My my dad was diagnosed with stage four cancer. My mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then they lost their home. Long story short, I was flying back and forth throughout the pandemic and really just felt, um, I well, you know, I, I'll tell you briefly the story. So I was, I was at my dad's bedside after a surgery. I'd been flying back and forth throughout the pandemic every other week to care for my dad, to get him to chemo because my mom could no longer drive. And I remember sitting at my dad's bedside while emailing a congregant about critical race theory, about whether or not our church had, had, had fallen, you know, trapped right. to critical race theory. And were we talking too much about race? Was I a Marxist? Was I a right. socialist? Because we were talking about race. And I, rem- I just felt like I couldn't breathe. And, and I felt like I had a bungee cord that was wrapped around me. And on one side of the bungee cord was the church. And on the other side of the bungee cord was my dad. I right. couldn't breathe. And I just said, God, I, I, I can't do this. Right. And I just heard the Lord whisper, you don't have to. And it was such a shock. 
because I thought, wait, but you called Correct. me, which we could talk Correct. so much we about, call, but about you that. called me. I'm emboldened. You're going to turn this around. I believed. I I had faith. I prayed that you would turn it around, God. So like, I have to stay put. I, right. I have to be the sacrificial right. lamb. I'm going to be the one that your spirit's going to come through all of these ideas. And then I heard something so different and yet so holy. You don't have to. You can go. I have a you don't have to story. Yeah. All right, we're going to come back to your story. But so I was a reluctant disciple. I'm a uh, Lord, you know, you, you're the Lord. I have to follow, right? Dutifully, right? I'm at my desk in my office one day, and the Lord said, You've given me everything you have to give except, well, you've, you have, you have followed me dutifully, right? And I said, Yeah. And uh, he said to me, you've done your time. Hmm. You're free. You can do whatever you like, said the wow. Lord to me. And I mean, you've done your time. Sounds kind of awful. But I was I was doing it because I love Jesus, of course, but not because, I mean, I was just doing it because I, I thought I had to. He said, you don't have to anymore. Mm-hmm. He said, you've done your time. And I thought, wait a minute. That's not an option for pastors. We have a call, just like you said. Yeah. We have a call. And it doesn't change. Yeah. And he said, you don't have to. And I said, I can do whatever I want. This isn't, you're not serious. And and I don't know how to describe this relation, this conversation we have with our Lord. You know, it's kind of, right. it scares some people off. Yep. But this was a real conversation because this was conversation I was having with a person and not in, I mean, these were not words that came from me. Hmm. And I said, I can do whatever I want. And he said, yeah, go for it. And then I got scared. Hmm. And I said, so... Are you saying I can't be a pastor anymore? And the Lord said, "No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying you can do whatever you want." Mm. And then I then I said, "Could I still be a pastor?" <laughs> and he said, "Yes. I created you to be a pastor." So I said, "So you're not kicking me out?" No. And it was that encounter with the Lord that helped me realize that the call in my life was God's gift. Yes powerful it is a gift and i thought i get to do this not a have to i get to do this so the lord said to you you don't have to die on this particular cross that's right i remember cherith v nordling new testament scholar once said to me she said you know sometimes we think that god is sitting us down at a table and saying eat this she Mm. said but what he's really saying is look at this buffet i have for you Mm mm-hmm feast and it's a gift so you don't have to and so you didn't right i didn't and i felt freedom in that and it has changed my understanding of call ever since right. even as i think you know I'm, I'm pastoring at a local church i love it i'm so happy i'm having the time of my life for the last two years but even just this understanding you know could could i end up being a lead pastor someday sure do i have to no There's freedom in my call. It's all gift. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of The Pastor's Table. We're honored you would spend part of your week with us. Our vision for this project is for it to spur collaborative conversation, not a one-way monologue. So here's three simple steps to participate with The Pastor's Table. First, subscribe to the podcast. 
A 30-minute episode will be released weekly, and we don't want you to ever miss a chance to join a formative conversation. Two, extend our conversation with a ministry friend. Think of a friend in ministry who might benefit from this conversation. Each week, we will provide discussion questions to, to prompt further dialogue between fellow pastors. And three, join the conversation. Go to thepastorstable.com to share with us your experiences in ministry and what theological convictions you would like to see The Pastor's Table explore. And until next time, may you be blessed as you serve faithfully in the gift of ministry God has granted you. Thanks for joining us today for this special episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed this first episode of Reverend Tara Beth Leach and Dr. Mark Quanstrom's new podcast, The Pastor's Table, be sure to subscribe and follow along with them on your favorite podcast app. And you can continue the conversation. We've left some discussion questions in today's episode description, along with a link to Dr. Mark Quanstrom's new course on Seminary Now, Pastoral Ministry, Calling and Resilience. We'll be back here next week with a brand new episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. <music>